Well, hey, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm part of our preaching team. And as Seth said, we're going to continue in our study of John chapter 9. And the question today is, if Jesus showed up, could you see him? If Jesus showed up, could you see him? And if you could see him, what would you see? If Jesus showed up, could you see him? Could you see him as he is? Could you know him as he is? And if you could see him, what would you see? You know, it seems like we have this sense that if we saw Jesus, we would instantly know it was Jesus, and there would be something about Jesus that would seem glorious and extraordinary and uh, almost kind of magical or mystical. I think we kind of imagine that because that's how Jesus ends up portrayed in so many of the pieces of art involving Jesus. Here's an artwork from the 16th century of the story that we're reading here today. And you see Jesus there, and, and as you look at the picture, your eyes are almost kind of instantly drawn to the brightness of Jesus' face. Notice his face is brighter than anyone else, and he has the blue sash, and he just sort of seems magical in some way. And I think we sort of imagine that if you were to interact with Jesus in his life, everyone sort of would have walked around going like, who's that guy with the aura? But in fact, Jesus was, was very normal. He was so normal that people didn't recognize that he was God when he was. A medical uh, reconstruction artist, uh, what he did is he said, you know what, let's, let's take some skulls that have been found from the first century in Galilee, in Israel, and use that to kind of reconstruct what perhaps Jesus might have actually looked like. And when he did that a number of years ago, here's what he came up with. No, here's really what he looked like. Isn't that great? So, so you look at this and you go, I don't know if that's what Jesus looked like. Maybe he didn't have a beard. Maybe it was longer. Maybe, maybe he did have more flowing hair like John Cronwall, perhaps. We don't, we don't know. But, but, but you look at this guy and you don't go, oh, wow, that's God. Do you? Like, do you think that this guy walked around going, I'm the light of the world, I'm the bread of life, I'm the river of living water, come to me and you'll have eternal life. And everyone thought, really? That guy? He just seems so normal, so ordinary, so regular. And yet the Gospel of John as a whole, and John 9 in particular, is all about helping us to see Jesus, to see Jesus, to savor Jesus, to see the things that he does, and to trust in him and to have life in his name. And we're going to look today at John chapter 9. We're going to look at it in entirety, just in, in, out of mercy for you. Uh, we only uh, stood to read 16 of the 41 verses. I didn't want you to have to be on your feet uh, that whole time. But we're going to look at all of John chapter 9. And what we're going to see in this story is that those people who should be able to see Jesus can't. And the one person who should have no shot to see Jesus actually can. Jesus wasn't impressive because of his physical appearance. Jesus was noteworthy because he was God in the flesh. And he shows it in this passage for anyone who has eyes 
to see it. Let's pray. Father, we need your help now. We pray that by the Spirit you would allow us to see and to savor Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen. Amen. All right, so here's what we're going to do as we go through John chapter 9, is we're going to look at these three different scenes and uh, then pull out of them uh, some lessons from each scene. So if you have your Bible, you're going to want it to follow along. Again, that's page 842 if you have one of the ones uh, that are here in the room under the seats in front of you. Um, The first scene we're going to call the healing. This is verses 1 to 7. It's the healing. And verse 1 is significant. It says, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. There's a number of other accounts in the Gospels of Jesus healing a blind man, um, but this is the only one where it specifically mentions that he was blind from birth. This is a condition he was born with. Uh, this is, it just emphasizes the seriousness of the condition. And they walk by, and the disciples ask a really interesting question. They turn this man into a bit of a case study, and they see this man born blind, and they ask a question that to us sounds pretty offensive, but in that day, it would have seemed like kind of a, maybe a normal question, and they say, Rabbi, uh, this man over here, born blind, who sinned that he was born blind, him or his parents? Now, this is an outrageous question today, right? A number of years ago, there was an English national team soccer coach who actually, in a statement and some conversation, indicated that perhaps people with disabilities were that way as because of something they had done. He was swiftly fired. But this was a common kind of view in the first century, was that if, if something bad was in your life, it was probably a kind of karma type thing that you deserved. You know, your parents had clearly done something. There was even some rabbinical teaching that perhaps a baby could sin while in the womb. Who sinned that this man was born blind? Jesus says it wasn't anybody who sinned. It wasn't this man. It wasn't his parents. This just happened so that the works of God would be displayed in him. This person is the way he is in order to honor and to glorify God. So that's what they say. Jesus goes on to say, I'm the light of the world. And then having said these things, verse 6, it says, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud. So this is fascinating. Jesus spits into the dirt, makes some mud, and puts it in the guy's eyes. Why does he do that? And if you read the accounts of Jesus, you know Jesus could have just said, see, and it could have opened his eyes. He could have just touched the man's eyes. He could have just spit in his face. But but why does he spit to make the mud? Well, we don't know this for sure, but the, the clue seems to be in verse 14. It says in verse 14, now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. There's a lot of uh, emphasis in this story on the making of the mud. And the reason for that was that part of the rabbinical tradition in the first century was that to keep the Sabbath holy and not work meant that you couldn't need any sort of bread or any sort of dirt or clay. You couldn't, you couldn't do that. To, to make mud was actually a kind of working that violated the Sabbath. And so it's like Jesus on the Sabbath going, hey, religious leaders, Watch this. There's also an interesting thing. When you read the book of Leviticus, you see that uncleanness is passed through saliva, right? Jesus didn't know about social distancing and, and all these things here, apparently. Uh, but, but in Leviticus, uh, uncleanness, you, you could, if you were unclean, you could make someone else unclean if they experienced your saliva in some way. 
But Jesus, through his saliva, this man actually catches Jesus' cleanness. It's interesting. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus touches the man with leprosy, and instead of him getting leprosy, the man catches Jesus' cleanness. So Jesus cleans or makes the mud, says, hey, go wash in the pool of Siloam. He goes and he washes, and he came back seeing. But interestingly, up to this point, the man has only heard Jesus' voice. Jesus is actually not here in the scene anymore. He seems to have gone somewhere else, and he'll come back a little bit later. But at this point, this man has only heard the voice of Jesus, experienced the touch of Jesus on his eyes with the mud. He's gone and done what he said, and now he can see. What does this scene tell us? Well, first, this scene tells us that Jesus' love is personal, not analytical. Jesus' love is personal, not analytical. The disciples treat this man like he's a project. The disciples treat this man like a case study. And it's interesting. I mean, they walk by this man, and they start to talk about this. And presumably, the man is like right there. And if you're blind, you don't have the sense of vision, so your other senses go up, especially your sense of hearing. So they're having this conversation. Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? And I have to think, because this is such a common understanding, I have to think that this actually wasn't the first time this man overheard that conversation. He was a beggar. He was well-known as a beggar. Surely, his whole life, he's wondered, was it me? What did I do? In a culture that's very family shame-driven, going, what, what a dishonor I am to my family. How unworthy. And these guys, these, even the disciples of Jesus, they treat him like a project, not like a person. But Jesus treats him like a person, and he moves toward him, and he loves him. See, we don't have this kind of superstitious thing, maybe like they did back then, but we still analyze and judge people, don't we? Paul Miller says, it's no longer fashionable to talk about sin, but we haven't lost our ability to be judgmental. Right? You know this. You, you know people, and you kind of interact with them, and you're like, what happened to that guy? Did, did his parents, like, give him paint chips or drop him on his head? Like, what happened to this guy? Like, him or his parents? Like, something screwed this guy up. And we very easily just want to kind of box people in because if we can put them in a box, and then they're sort of safely at a distance from us, and that's not how Jesus is. He moves toward this person as a person with a story, and specifically as a story that isn't finished. Listen, isn't it good news for you and me today that when Jesus sees us, he doesn't see a project, he doesn't see a category, he sees a person, and he sees a person with a story, and a story that's not finished, and a story that is intended so that the work of God would show up in your life and give him glory. That's what he's doing in us. That's what he's doing for us, because Jesus' love is personal. It's not analytical. You're not a project to Jesus. You're a person, and he loves you. That's the first lesson from this story. The second lesson is that Jesus is the light of the world who will not be overcome by darkness. Over and over in the Gospel of John, John is referring to Jesus as the light of the world. It was in chapter one, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John three nineteen. this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness 
rather than the light because their works were evil. A chapter ago, John 8, Jesus said this, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then here in verse 5, he says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus is the light of the world. He is claiming to be the, the light that allows us to see, that allows us to experience wholeness, that allows us to experience life. But instead, we walk in the darkness. See, all of us sort of think we're pretty enlightened. You know, well, I'm pretty enlightened because I, I went to school and I have a good education. We look at society and we go, what's going what's to bring kind of enlightenment and wholeness? And, and that's been the whole project of the last few centuries in Western culture is the, the enlightenment project uh, driven by science and technology and education and progress. And yet the 20th century was one of the darkest centuries in human history. What's bringing light? The only answer is that Jesus is the light. Every other kind of, of, of light is at best borrowing from his light. But it's never able to fully replace it. Jesus is the light of the world. And the third thing that we learn from this uh, scene is that Jesus initiates with love. I love this one. Jesus initiates with love. This is not like the story in Mark chapter 10, where there's a blind man on the side of the road yelling, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. This isn't Jesus responding to a request. This is Jesus initiating with his love. This man has not even talked to Jesus, and Jesus moves toward him initiating in love. This isn't the first time it's happened also in John. In John chapter 5, Jesus was there at the pool at Bethsaida, and there were tons of people who were uh, sick and blind and lame, and he finally finds this man who had been lame for 38 years, unable to walk, and he heals him of his own initiative. Jesus initiates. Listen, that's good news if Jesus loves us, because all of us, when we think about love and we think about relationships and we think about romance especially, don't you want to be pursued? Like, guys, you know, isn't it awesome when instead of you having to go get her number, she asks for yours? Now, I don't know what that's like either, but, <laughs> but I bet that would be awesome, right? And, and we want to be, be pursued. Like, it's great to pursue someone else and have them receive you, but it's even better when they pursue you, when they ask you to go to dinner, when they initiate romance with you. Jesus is the one initiating. Jesus is the one pursuing. Jesus is the one chasing us down and and doing it with love. And the reason this is so important is because of verse 1, we are blind from birth. This statement about this man, you could also say is true of the human condition, that apart from Jesus, we are blind from birth. We're blind to our sin, we're blind to our need, we're blind to our depravity, and we need the light of Jesus to shine in through us to illuminate, otherwise we're just going to be drawn again to the darkness. We need something to initiate. We need something to change us. We are like uh, my late friend Tom Schrader used to say, we are like vultures. See, a vulture is drawn by nature to meat, right? If we had a real hungry vulture back there in the back, he hasn't eaten in weeks. And we got a couple of big bowls up here. One is this big bowl of really fresh lettuce, and another is a really big bowl of uh, juicy, kind of still bloody, raw hamburger, 
and we are holding that guy back there, that vulture, and we turn him loose, what, which bowl is he going to come for? Come on, class. Which bowl is he coming for? The meat. All right? If we get a second vulture and we go, all right, uh, maybe that one was just weird. Let's get a different one. What's the second vulture going for? Which bowl? The meat. If we get a hundred vultures, which bowl are they going for? The meat. Why? Because vultures by nature are drawn to meat. And we, listen, because of our sinful, corrupted nature, because of our sin, we are drawn to darkness. We love the darkness rather than the light because our works are evil. And so what we need, if we're ever going to come to the light of Jesus, just like the vulture, if he's ever going to come to this lettuce, get this, nothing's preventing the vulture from getting the lettuce. There's no cage in front of it. He could have it if he wanted it, but he doesn't want it because he has a vulture heart. And if he's ever going to have a lettuce-eating heart, you're going to have to reach into that little vulture heart and take it out and put in a new heart. And the same thing has to happen for you and I, is if we're going to experience Jesus as the light of the world, the one that we want to love and adore and appreciate, he has to reach into our hearts and change us. He has to initiate and he does. Listen, this is the good news, friends. If you hear nothing else today, hear this. Life with God is not about you achieving. It is about you receiving the grace of God. He is the initiator. He's the one who initiates with love. So that's the first scene. Second scene, we could call the investigations. There's a series of Kind of four investigations, uh, if you will. It seems like they kind of ramp up in intensity. And the first one, this is from verses 8 to 34. The first uh, investigation is with the neighbors. Uh, in verse 8, there's the neighbors, these people who they, they know this guy, they see this guy, they are familiar with him. Oh, this is this beggar guy. The, the transformation this man experiences is so significant that they're even like, is this the same guy? And there's kind of some question, is it really... And the man just testifies real plainly, verse 11, I went and I washed and I received my sight. And so this clearly miraculous thing happens. So they say, man, is God at work in this? What's going on? And so they get the religious leaders involved. And, and get this, they're not bringing the Pharisees, these religious leaders, to bear to, to punish this guy. They're going, what, what's going on here? And the, bring the Pharisees to the man. And the Pharisees start obsessing about what? The mud. And the Sabbath. How did he do it? When did he do it? How did it go? Verse 15. So the Pharisees again asked him how he'd received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God. For he does not keep the Sabbath. Listen, how blind are you? to see a man who was born blind receive his sight but be upset because it happened on the wrong day. That's blind. Others are like, well, could a sinner really do this? And there's a division. We see this as a recurring theme. People divide over Jesus. So that's the second investigation. The third investigation involves the parents because these guys are not really sure, well, was he born blind or was this actually a plant? And so they invite the parents to come and to be interviewed and questioned by the religious leaders. Now, listen, we've heard already in the story about the parents, haven't we? Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? 
So, so imagine the mindset of these parents as they're being asked to come and kind of testify to the religious leadership. Now, th- they're concerned, we'll see in the story, their concern is that they're going to be kicked out of the, the synagogue if they're too closely aligned with Jesus. And so clearly they're in the synagogue, but you have to imagine based on just what you know of this dynamic, they are on the edges. They're not in the inner circle. They're not well known. People aren't looking to them. There's always a kind of eye of suspicion. What did you do that made your kid end up like that? And so they get called in. And they pretty quickly backpedal. They're like, you heard what he said. He's an adult. Let him speak for himself. Because their big fear, verse 22, they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. So they don't even really support the guy. And then the last investigation is this crescendo. And you see the man becoming more and more bold. It says in verse 24, so for the second time, they called the man who'd been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. That's their way of just saying, tell the truth. Don't lie. You're under oath. He answered, this is such a great answer. (laughs) Whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, well, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Again, what are they wondering? Did he use the mud? He answered them, you see, he's he's getting bolder. I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? I mean, this guy's been standing there being talked about for years. He's got some pent-up stuff that's ready to come out now, like... And they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't even know where he comes from. That was all of chapter eight. You don't know where he comes from because you weren't listening. Verse 30, the man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not not know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone's a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin. Who sinned, this man or his parents? You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. What do we learn from these investigations? The first lesson is that you don't have to know much to testify about Jesus. You don't have to know much. This guy didn't know much. He'd been kind of connected to Jesus. He doesn't even have a full understanding yet of who Jesus is. That'll come in the next scene. But he's still testifying to Jesus. Listen, friends, don't overcomplicate this. If you're a follower of Jesus, you might think, well, I need to take this class and I need to read this book and I need to listen to those podcasts. Hey, great, do all that stuff. There's lots of great resources, but you don't need to have all the answers to be able to do what this guy does. What does he do? He just says, here's what God's done for me. Verse 11, I received my sight. Verse 15, he put mud on my eyes. I washed, I see. Verse 25, one thing I do know, though I was blind, now I see. Verse 30, he opened my eyes. So let me ask, what has God done for you. What's he done for you? We get all scared. We get all nervous. When was the last time with a sparkle in your eye, you just told someone, listen, I don't, you got a lot of great questions. I'll get back to you, I guess, about that. But here's what I know. I was blind and now I see. I, I was this way 
now I'm this way. And it's not because I did anything, it's because he initiated and he loves me. You don't have to know a lot. You just have to know what God has done for you. But the second lesson from the investigations is that the work of Jesus in your life, get this, will be a dividing point, often with great cost. It will be a dividing point. It is here, verse 16. There was a division among them. There's this constant back and forth. Even the parents are like, eh. Right, the people who are most supportive, supposed to be the most supportive are like, leave us out of this, ask him. I just want you to have clear expectations because listen, life will get harder if you follow Jesus. I remember years ago, uh, Matthew and Christy Brazelton, uh, who we've known for a long time, they were into hiking, and we were kind of starting to do a little bit of hiking, and Matthew was like, hey, let's go do, there's this beautiful hike, it's, it's really easy, it's not that hard, you'll, you'll love it, it's awesome. Uh, it was Picacho Peak. Um, and if you've been to Picacho Peak, you know that Matthew was not telling the truth. Uh, and so it's, you know, you're kind of, it's on your way to Tucson, and we're like 45 minutes into it, and I'm kind of like saying some bad words under my breath about Matthew that I'm not going to repeat here because I'm like, this is total hogwash. Like he told me this was not that hard and this, I'm like ready to die here. I've already finished all my water. Like what was he telling me? Right. And listen, I just want to be really upfront with you that following Jesus is going to be hard. Listen, you'll have forgiveness of your sin. You'll have relationship with God. You all have the assurance that he loves you but it's still going to get tough. Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil for he's with us. Get this, but you will walk through the valley of the shadow of death. See, some people are going to see the change in your life and they're going to go, wow, that's amazing. That's so cool. That's really great. Other people are going to go, oh, you became one of those weirdos. What are you, a born again now? Yeah. And I just think it's just so crazy to me how like people aren't lining up to celebrate our faithfulness to Jesus and we are shocked by it. What did you expect? Did you expect that Hollywood just would keep rolling out movie after movie about the glory of Christ? Did you expect that the politicians in Washington, D.C. would just go, you know what, I really only want to do what God wants? Did you think that? Did you think higher education was mostly going to really try to help your kids be faithful to the scriptures? And yet, when it happens, when, when you're in corporate America and you're, you're love for Jesus is not celebrated like everyone else's thing is celebrated, but it's actually sneered at. What did you expect? So I just want to really lovingly say, I know that stinks, but quit whining about it. Just what did you expect? This is how it is. From the beginning, there will be great cost. This is the greatest day of this man's life. And on the greatest day of his life, his parents keep their distance and he's kicked out of the synagogue. What's the final scene? The final scene is the lesson. 
what all this is shaping up to, what it's pointing to is, uh, begins in verse 35. It says, Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? By the way, this is the first time the man has seen Jesus. Up to this point, he's heard him, he's felt his touch, but now he's actually seeing him. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Jesus asks him. He answers, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Right? He recognizes the voice. He knows who's talking to him. Whatever you want, man, I'll believe in whoever. Jesus said to him, you have seen him. That, that's an amazing sentence. Because he's on one hand, he's talking about like literally you're seeing me right now. But he's also saying up to this point, you're the only one that's seen me. You never saw me. You were blind, but you actually see me. You have seen him and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe and he worshiped him. We gotta just pause and say this, that when he worships Jesus, Jesus does not say, hey, 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 stop doing that. Don't worship me, I'm just a man. Get up, get up, get up, don't worship me. That's not what he says. Jesus receives his worship, which would be blasphemous unless Jesus is God. Jesus gives the lesson. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these words and said to him, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. What are the lessons from this lesson? First is that Jesus keeps initiating with love. Jesus keeps initiating with love. Notice, having heard that this man was cast out, Jesus tracks him down. Jesus finds him. Jesus looks for him. Jesus is often in the stories trying to get away from people who are trying to find him. Here, he's finding someone that doesn't even know where he is. He's tracking him down. He's saying, you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, and I want to be with you. Jesus doesn't just marry us and never take us on a date again. Jesus marries us and we get date night. He keeps pursuing us. He keeps loving us. And get this, it is hard. It is costly to follow Jesus. But when everyone else turns their back on you, he will not. He'll be with you. What's the final lesson? Well, it's really what this whole chapter has been ramping up to. And it's this, that Jesus came to heal and to forgive the blindness that imagines you can see. There's a blindness that imagines you can see. He talks about it in verse 41. Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Now, this is an interesting move that Jesus makes. Because up to this point, you might just think, well, they just don't see him. But what, what Jesus says here is their inability to see him, you could say even their unwillingness to see him, their blindness leads to them being guilty. They're not just guilty because they love the darkness. They're guilty because they love the darkness instead of the light. The light has come and they reject him. The light has come and they turn away, right? The light comes and some people are drawn to it and other people are repelled by it. And Jesus says, if you're blind and you know you're blind, that's fine. I can work with that. But if you're blind and you think you see, you're guilty. See, we are so often blinded 
by our success, by our money, by our status, by our family, by our traditions, by our perceived goodness compared to other people, and we think, I'm fine, I'm okay, I'm good. And what we are is blind. We resist the idea that that God would pour out his wrath forever in hell against those who don't believe in Christ. We, we, uh, that doesn't, and, and partly why that doesn't, why we don't like that is because it's horrible. I don't want anyone I love to be in hell. But what Jesus is saying is that hell is not just because of the sin. Hell is because of your unwillingness to receive the Savior. They're blind, but they think they see. You know, I, uh, I've noticed in my life that I have blind spots. There's things about me. There's things about the way I lead. There's things about the way I relate that I don't always see. They're blind spots. And fortunately, because I have a lot of faithful friends, I have people that will from time to time come to me and say, hey, here's this thing that I, I see in your life. And uh, I'm sad to say that my first response is often, yeah, I don't see that. To which they kind of go, I know. I know you don't see it. That's why we call it a blind spot. But what you find is if you actually will own up to your blindness, you'll heal and grow, and your relationship with that person will heal and grow. But if you keep insisting that you see, you keep insisting that you're right, you keep insisting that you're fine, you will stay painfully blind. And so Jesus is the faithful friend and he's coming to you today and he's saying, I want you to see me. And as long as you realize you don't see me as fully as you you should, you're good. Keep leaning in. But if you imagine, well, I'm fine. I'm educated. I'm okay. I'm good. I'm not that bad. I'm better than them. You're still blind. And Jesus is lovingly saying, come, see me, savor me. See me as the treasure that I am. See me as the light of the world. See me as the bread of life, the water of life, who if you eat and drink of Jesus, you'll never hunger, you'll never thirst. Even when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he will be there with you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for Christ, and we pray even now that you'd help us to see him more. God, I pray that we would repent not just of our blindness, but of our imagining that we see. God, help us repent of our our pride, of our arrogance, of our self-sufficiency. Help us instead be drawn to the initiating love of Christ. Lord, you're good. Your love endures forever. We pray in Christ's name, amen.